Stand, please. If you're a student in school, you can stand all the way up through college. All right, we've got a room full of students. That's awesome. We're going to be praying for you all this month. We're praying for our students specifically, surgically, especially this month. Uh, there's, there are going to be some things we're praying through uh, each Sunday. This, this Sunday, to this morning, we're going to pray for opportunities to share the gospel in, in word and deed. That as you're in your context, that you will have occasions where you can be Christ in that context. You can share good news of who he is and what, what has been done for us. We're going to pray, too, that you'll listen well. Right? I see some smiles on faces. That you'll listen well, that you'll be good students. That you actually can say, I, I want to be a good student because of who you represent. Because of whose you are. Okay, you probably have a family name you're connected to, I'm sure. And man, you want to bring honor to the family name. I'm talking about your identity in Christ. Man, that's a reason to just knock it out of the ballpark in school. To give it everything you've got. And we're going to pray that nothing hinders your learning. The, the distractions and all the things that could possibly draw you away, that the Lord would keep those at bay so you can really apply yourself. Y'all don't have to stand during the whole prayer. Y'all can go ahead and sit down. But I wanted us to see our students. We have a room full of students here. Uh, we have um, realized and recognized that our kids and our young people, our youth, uh, on up through our college-age students, um, man, what a, what a challenging environment. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's never been easy to grow up, I don't think. But in a challenging environment in our electronic age with this virtual world that's a click away and the kind of access that young people have to such damaging things that can draw them away and harden their hearts, we want to pray very specifically and surgically and especially for our young people this morning. We'll pray for them. And we're also going to pray for another church in our community. We're praying for Central Christian Church. Um, John uh, Tate is the pastor there. His wife, Doris, has had... Um, Four strokes in the last three years. She is in med she's at Medical City, Frisco, and has just been moved to ICU. We want to pray for this brother, his wife, uh, for this ministry at, at, at Central Christian Church. And we um, want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ that are, are worshiping there. Uh, we're also going to pray for the Iraqi people this morning. We're praying through the Joshua, Proje Joshua Project, the hundred least reached people groups in the world. Uh, we're dedicating a Sunday to a people group. And this Sunday we're praying for the Iraqi people. So let's pray. Lord, this morning, we want to first of all pray for our students. Just thinking about uh, all the opportunities that they have to be distracted with worldly things, with harmful things. Uh, Lord, we want to just pray that you would guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, that what happens on Sundays and Wednesdays as our students gather for Bible study and corporate worship, uh, it actually is, is energizing and galvanizing and equipping for our young people and, and that they can step into those contexts. And first of all, that they can share Christ when they have opportunity in word and deed. And uh, Lord, that you would give them opportunities to, uh, to encourage others to taste and see that you are really good. Lord, we pray for even those opportunities, even this week, that those dots might connect to this request even this very morning. That our students will remember, hey, we prayed about this. And God delivered an opportunity for me to share Christ. Or two, we want to pray for our students that they will listen well and that they will do a good job in school because of who they represent. Lord, that they will work as unto the Lord and apply themselves in school. Lord, and lastly, this morning, we want to pray that, they, uh, would, that nothing would hinder their studies with all the distractions and all the potential um, even uh, relational uh, distractions. Lord, that all of those things will be held at bay so that you will give them an attentiveness that's beyond them so that they can really apply themselves and do really well in school. We are entrusting our students to you and thankful that you are a good father and a good shepherd and that you care about the details of our students. Lord, also this morning, we want to pray for uh, another uh, church in our community. We're praying for Central Christian Church, for John Tate, and for his wife, Doris. Lord, uh, just imagining um, how uh, challenging it must be for John right now to care for his wife and to pastor. And uh, from what I understand, a, a single pastor... Uh, context, Lord, we just want to just lift this man up to you and his, his wife. Lord, we want to lift this church up to you and ask you to bless them, Lord. Sustain them. Lord, we pray that they would worship in this season. Uh, as hard as it may be, that it wouldn't be an obstacle to worship, but be a vehicle to worship as they were being stretched well beyond themselves. 
Lord, we pray that the people of God at Central Christian Church would, would be a blessing to this family, would also, in so doing, be salt and light to our community on the north side of town. Lord, we are entrusting this church family to you and asking you to bless them. Lord, also this morning, we want to pray for the Iraqi people, 15 million people that are unbelievers um, uh, of the, the Iraqi people group. Lord, we uh, want to ask you to send workers who are burdened to step into a really hard and difficult and dangerous context. Lord, we pray that you would soften hearts, that you would uh, uh, give men dreams uh, and visions so that they would have an anticipation of, of who their creator is, that you would introduce them to Christ through people and workers going to the far corners. Lord, we are entrusting this people to you and asking for just a massive prayer uh, that, that you would do something great among the Iraqi people. Lord, lastly, this morning, we want to pray for our little brothers uh, that are struggling with health issues um, for little Everett and um, for Trevor. Uh, We uh, just lift them up, Lord, and pray that you would give them uh, healing and help. Uh, Pray for Trevor, even as he's struggling this morning, just having a rough morning. We pray for Lynn as he's caring for Trevor. Uh, Just uh, thankful that, again, you're a great father. And we ask for your help and mercy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. <clears throat> you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. I thought we would start the morning with something that we could all relate to. Let me ask a question before I show you a couple of images. Uh, let me ask, how many of y'all shop at Costco? You can raise your hand. Raise it high. I mean, come on. Some of y'all shop at Costco and aren't owning it. I'm sure of it. I think more of y'all than that. But I, okay, good. There's a, there's a latent hand, all right? Um, somebody was convicted that I, I better do this in church if I don't raise my hand. All right, so I want to have a, a sense of how many of y'all shopped at Costco to see if these uh, memes were, were going to connect at all. Go ahead and put that first one up, Corey. I have... Um, Man, I just discovered Costco memes this week, and I, man, they are hilarious. I'm telling you, I'm really enjoying the Costco memes because the, the whole sample thing has been a, this strange phenomenon for years. I, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's people watching extraordinaire. I mean, it's people experiencing, I mean, crazy stuff going on at the, at the sample tables. But here's a guy that's pondering whether or not he's going to buy the product. You know he's not. He's just acting interested because she's working or he's working so hard at selling the product, Okay. All right, let's see that next one. Can y'all see that? I've been laughing about that one all week long. Me, when I find really good samples at Costco, she's got a different hairdo in every picture there. Because like uh, Christy and I, like I'm, hey, well, hold my hat. All right, hit him borrow your glasses. I'm going to go back for another one. I mean, y'all ever do that? I thought that was hilarious, man. This one, I was crying. I was laughing so hard. That's good. All right, go ahead and hit that next one. And this is what happens. You can't really see your eyes through the sunglasses, but it says when Costco cashier gives you your total, her eyes are like completely wide open. She's sitting there all sophisticated like because she's shopping at Costco, but then she gets the bottom line. I just came for a Costco chicken, and it turns out I owe $378 worth of stuff. It's pretty great. All right, and my favorite is coming up next. All right, this is my favorite. Go ahead. Dad, why is my sister's name Rose? Because your mother loves roses. Thanks, Dad. No problem, Costco hot dog. (laughs) No problem, Costco hot dog. I love you, son. That's so great. Man, that one made me cry. I was laughing so hard. And it it was real life for me. Daniel would be named Costco Chicken. Because I love those rotisserie chickens at Costco, man. That's the best deal in the land, right? All right, you can shut. That was the last one, right? Okay, yeah, all right, good. That's probably good. Man, I got some mileage out of those this week. I thought, you know, what's funny, um, what's funny about those memes to me is realizing that most of us get them. I think we are really a rich people. I sent out an email this week just kind of, trying to remind us really of how rich we are as a people. Uh, The United States is the seventh richest people in the world. And probably of those first 10, 15, 20, I mean, we're talking about real riches compared to the rest of the world. It's a very rich 
country, very rich context we lived in. And, and, I, and I think it's evidenced by the fact that most of us get the irony and jokes behind the Costco memes. Just the notion that there's something that we could understand the subtle humor in an environment where you can go and literally have a meal worth of free samples. We live in a very rich land. We are very rich people who could actually go and have a meal for free while we're shopping. Now, we'll come full circle, I think, on that thought, but I thought it's a nice place, nice place to start this morning to just remember that the Lord has given us a lot. He's given us a lot. He's provided for us really, really well. It's a great place to start this morning. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount for the last couple of months, and uh, we've uh, these last few weeks have been looking at the Beatitudes. We're in the fifth Beatitude this morning. Last week was our first look at the fifth Beatitude. This is the second look at it. It's in chapter 5, verse 6. Very simple um, verse. Before I read it, I just want to remind you of something. that What the Lord is preaching on here in the Sermon on the Mount, is He's preaching on this is what the good life is. Okay, this is an ancient question. How do we find and discover happiness? How do we find the good life? Socrates and Aristotle and these guys and Plato, they're teaching on and speaking on. How do we find happiness? How do we find the good life? Well, Jesus here is stepping on a mountain and he's saying, here's the good life. Let me show you what the good life looks like. And it's things that you would completely not expect. Being poor in spirit, uh, that's a hard sell. That doesn't sound like the good life. Mourning, meekness and humility. Hunger and thirst, just even hunger and thirst alone don't sound that great. But when we're talking about hunger and thirst for righteousness, implying that we have contexts and occasions where we don't experience something righteous, as in pangs, the absence of righteousness. And in these last couple of weeks, mercy. And Jesus is saying, this, now this is the good life. So the passage that we looked at last week and will continue on this morning is very simple. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We're going to spend a moment and just sort of unpack a little bit of the, the verse to just kind of get acquainted with the terms here. And then we're really the rest of the book of Matthew and the rest of the gospel. We looked at this the, uh, one form last week. We'll look at a second form this week. But let's just first off just kind of gather up the details in this passage. Uh, the, the word merciful is used twice. There are a version of it. Merciful is blessed are the merciful. And then later on in the verse, for they shall receive mercy. The adjective form is in the very beginning. I don't bring up Greek words very often, but when I do, I do it for good reason. And I brought it up last week for good reason that you'll see this morning, I think. The adjective form of this word is elimon. Okay, it comes from the root word for mercy, elios. It's a nice little kind of a lightweight synonym for this word mercy is the word kindness. Okay, it's, and I say lightweight because mercy is much more than kindness. But it gives you a sense of what's going on in that word, elios. The adjective form is elimon. That's the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The word that's used at the very end of the verse there is the verb form and is the Greek word elethesantai. Elethesantai. If you're trying to write that out, just write it out hyphen, or, uh, phonetically. Okay, the, the, the adjective form is in the beginning. Okay, I'm doing this for a good reason. You'll understand why later. Adjective form in the, in the beginning, verb form at the end. And the verb form really could be translated in some ways. It, it says, they shall receive mercy. That sounds like you're going to receive something. Okay, that almost sounds like a noun. If you wanted to translate it in the verbal sense, it would be, they shall be mercied by the Lord. The Lord shall mercy them if you want to think about it in the verb sense. And that also identifies where the mercy comes from in terms of the promise. Those whose lives are characterized by being merciful will receive mercy or will be mercied by the Lord. Okay, Adjective form in the beginning, verb form at the end. This little tiny little word here, the, in front of merciful, in front of the adjective form, gives the sense that we're talking about a people who are characterized by this. If someone says, these people are the merciful people. You're like, ah, oh, this is, must be a way of life for these people. And that's the sense here, a pattern of merciful deeds, a generous disposition and a way of life. Okay, and that's true of all of these things so far, all of these beatitudes. That this good life that Jesus is presenting are those who are the poor in spirit, those who are the mourning, 
Okay, those who are the meek and humble, those who are the folks that are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Yes, those folks that are characterized by those things in addition to mercy as a way of life. There's a verse here in chapter 5, verse 20 that stands out as something that I think would have been shocking for the folks on that hillside that day. And I'll read it just so we can kind of connect to it because I think there's an interesting point here to be made. For I tell you, this is later on in the Sermon on the Mount, moments after he's spoken the Beatitudes. Okay, time-wise, this might be, what, a minute later? I don't know how long it would take to read half of a chapter in his sermon. We don't know how long he paused for effect. Okay, but a few breaths later, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That likely would have gotten an audible gasp out of a mountainside worth of listeners. Because, man, the scribes and the Pharisees, those folks were seriously devout. These folks who were coming to hear this sermon from the Lord that day would have likely thought, oh, we're talking scribes and Pharisees. We've got to be more righteous than them. How could that possibly be something we could achieve and accomplish? Well, last week I pointed out that one way you could do that is by actually being merciful. Because there's a refrain, there's a message that... that that it comes often throughout the Gospels where the Lord is telling these Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees, you need to figure out, you need to go learn about mercy. He actually says over and over again something along these lines. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. See, the Pharisees and Sadducees had no use for the dregs of society. You know how the stories go. If, if he knew who this woman was, he wouldn't let her wash his feet. You know how the story goes, man. These scribes and Pharisees, they had no use for the dregs. They had no use for the grungy folks. They had no use for the sinful. They had no use absolutely for the tax collecting. Man, look at this guy. He eats with tax collectors. They had no use for prostitutes. They had no use for the sick and lame and the blind and the deaf. They had no use for the messy. They had no use for the undesirables. And the message from the Lord is, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Man, if that's one way you want to figure out how your righteousness can exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, well, one way is to be one thing they weren't, merciful. Someone who has time for the undesirables. Last week, we looked at this uh, kind of in, in the direction of forgiveness. We considered last week that mercy sort of hits two different trajectories over the course of the, the rest of the gospel. And one is a really profound development in chapter 18, where forgive as you've been forgiven, show mercy as you've been shown mercy, the billions of dollars, kajillion dollars that we talked about last week in contrast to the thousand dollars, the little meager sums that we owe one another, that's a strong development in the book of Matthew. But what else is a very strong development in the book of Matthew is mercy for the undesirables. And it's sort of hidden and sort of uh, cloaked in chapter 6. I want you to just turn over the page if you need to or look across the page to chapter 6. I'm going to show you where this is brought out. You're about to meet the noun form of the word. Okay, I've introduced you to the, to the adjectival form, the verb form, and you're about to meet the noun form. Okay, but it's hidden in there. You're not going to see it unless you uh, somehow have the original Greek version in your lap. So that's why I kind of dealt with the Greek last week and this week. This is the other trajectory of Matthew is compassion for the suffering and the needy. In chapter 6, beginning in verse 2. In fact, I'll read verse 1 just for the sake of context. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. All right, it's invisible there. You can't see this noun form I'm talking about, but let me show you actually where it is. It's, it's translated in my English Standard Version as the needy. 
Okay, it's, in, it's there in verse 2, and it's later on in verse 3. When you give to the needy, and in verse 3, but when you give to the needy. That those two words, the needy, are translated here in the ESV. In the original language, it is the noun form of the word we've been considering this morning. Eli masune is the noun form. Okay, we've got the, the adjectival form, Eli man. We've got the, the, um, the verb form, elethesantai. And then we've got the noun form, Eli masune. This is the noun form of this word. And it's interestingly, surprisingly translated as the needy. It shouldn't be translated that way. In fact, some other translations, like the New American Standard, the King James Version, the, uh, the Net Bible, the New English or something like that. I don't, know, I don't know what the acronym stands for. If you have any of those versions, then there's a word in there that's a better word. But although it's not even the best word, it's the word alms or charity. Okay, that's the noun form of mercy. Now, the reason I bring that out, the reason we're going to take time on that is just considering that compassion for the suffering needy, mercy specifically, takes the form of actually giving some tangible mercy. And you see it playing out in alms and charity for folks who are needy. So you can understand why they use the term there, the needy. They sort of translated it for us of the application there. The needy, those who are on the receiving end of mercy, those who need mercy. The reason I don't like that translation as identifying just the needy is it implies it's just people that don't have food or clothing or money because we're all needing mercy. Okay? I, I would like to go with the, 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 a better translation, which would be alms, but even then that's not the best translation. What we're going to call it is tangible mercy. Okay, maybe we might read this thing a different way. When you give tangible mercy, sound no trumpet before you. Okay, we're talking like a noun type mercy. I thought about a word. I, I did a little research on some other words that might be easy, easier to visualize in terms of an adjective, a verb, and a noun. Okay, here's a good example of merciful. In this case, we're looking at merciful is the adjective. Mercy is the verb, as in God mercies us. Okay, and then the noun form is alms. Okay, but here's, here's another example. Powerful is the adjective. Empower is the verb. And then na- the noun is power. Okay, I'm just going to read the, the, the beatitude a different way so you can kind of understand why we're doing this little exercise. Blessed are the powerful, for they shall be empowered. Okay, and then here, when you give power to those who need it, here in chapter 6. Okay, that's just a little exercise for you to understand how these words are used differently and we need to connect to how they're used so we understand that they are connected. He's saying this is the good life for those who are practicing this thing. Then how does that play out? Where does that play out? We saw it clearly in forgiveness in Matthew chapter 18, but it's obscured here in chapter 6. And I'm going to do the work of unearthing it, excavating it, so we can see that that word there gives us Beautiful access to understanding how to walk out mercy. There's a Puritan named Thomas Watson that had a nice quote that I thought would be one uh, to, to introduce at this point. It'll be one that I'll remind you of later. Mercy in this sense is a melting disposition where we lay to heart the miseries of others and are ready on all occasions to be instrumental for their good. I'm going to say that again. Mercy is a melting disposition where we lay to heart the miseries of others and are ready on all occasions to be instrumental for their good. I think it's interesting here where Jesus is speaking of when you're giving alms or when you're giving tangible mercy to someone needing mercy. He's not saying that you should or shouldn't. He's implying that you already are. The issue is about how you go about doing it, where the world's going to see you or whether it's going to be quiet and obscure and hidden just for the Lord to see. If you're going to make a big deal out of it or not. The issue is not whether or not you do it. It's assumed that God's people give tangible mercy to those who need it. Man, do y'all see that? Like tangible Mercy that you can touch, stuff that you can feel, stuff that, stuff that you can hold in your hands, something that you could eat, something that you could wear, something that you could drink. Okay? All right. 
All right, did a little work there to unpack that. I know that was a little challenging, a little bit off the uh, grid a little bit, off the norm. But I'm going to show you four different snapshots of someone crying out to our Lord to be mercied and what Jesus does with real, tangible mercy, how he responds to those requests for mercy. So four little passages we're going to look at, four little vignettes. We're just going to spend a few minutes on each. Okay, so I'll tell you where they are. Matthew chapter 9, Matthew 15, Matthew 17, and Matthew 20. And I'll prompt you as we get there. But just so you know, our map for the morning, and hopefully you'll have, have a chance to kind of be able to follow along and understand how this is going to play out. Okay, Matthew chapter 9 is the first one. You can go ahead and turn there. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 27. Each of these beatitudes are so beautifully illustrated and applied by our Lord that we'd be remiss if we didn't take some time seeing him be merciful. Okay, so here's the first of those four. In Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Two blind men follow him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. There it is. Mercy us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. They couldn't keep silent about something like that. Mercy, in this case, clearly brings healing. They called out for a real need. They called out for something that they actually obviously needed. And Jesus provided what they needed. He gave them real help. He gave them tangible mercy in a healing. Now there's something I want to share with y'all. It's a graphic picture into the life of the blind. An ancient picture. The blind now have lots of aids. Evan and Luke have all kind of stuff that help them with their schoolwork. They have all kind of electronics and things like that. They have things that they can sit in a classroom that projects what's on the board in front of them. Okay, there's still the old-fashioned cane. Luke, Evan doesn't need it, but Luke needs it around campus. They probably didn't even use a cane in this day. They certainly didn't have a red and white one, I wouldn't imagine, with a wobbling little ball on the end where they can feel the ground and surface with them. Okay, somebody who was blind in this context could do nothing other than need and call out for mercy. These guys would have been prime candidates for what we were talking about this morning, alms. Okay, food, clothing, drink, provision. All right, so here's a graphic picture into the life of the disabled in the ancient times. And just listen to this passage. I'll I'll tell you where it is if you want to look at it later, but just listen. In John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And now there was in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades. Okay, this pool was probably a natural spring, and you can just envision this was probably kind of pretty. I mean, it'd be kind of a cool place, natural spring filling these pools with colonnades, five of them that are are roofed portico type things. You can see this being a nice place to hang out on a hot day, you know, a nice place to have a picnic, right? I mean, you could just, I mean, might, maybe a nice place to propose, all the great things that you could think about at a cool, ancient place like this. Well, this is actually what's going down at this pools at Bethesda. And these lay a multitude of invalids, a multitude of disabled folks. Okay, there are blind people, they're lame, and they're paralyzed. Those are the three that are mentioned. Blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. What probably happened over the course of the workday for folks, if you had a disabled person in your family, is you would just kind of prop them up and carry them and kind of help them along. If they're, in this case, this guy was disabled, couldn't walk, you'd carry them and you'd plop them at the, at the pool of Bethesda and you'd go about your workday in Jerusalem. Selling stuff maybe on the Via Dolorosa. You know, you're just doing your thing while John's sitting over at the pool of Bethesda and you're about to find out why. It was not just a good parking place that was kind of cool with some nice overhangs. 
But actually, the rest of this will tell you the rest of the story. Jesus saw John, or this guy, we just gave him a name, John, lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. And he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man is probably unable to even conceptualize what that would even mean. He says, well, I appreciate you asking me. Um, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another one steps down before me. The only hope this guy had was that he might be near one of these pools. When the water stirred, they believed that angels periodically would show up and stir the water. If you were the first one to plop over in there, you'd get healed. Man, talk about a sad stretch, isn't it? The best these guys had to hope for was being next to the pool at this rare moment when the water stirred on chance that it was actually true that the angels would stir the water, you'd plop over in there, and bing, you're healed. This guy had 38 years of that laying at the pool of Bethesda with his lame and blind and paralyzed buddies, just like a bunch of seals on the beach. Man, it's sad. What a sad existence, man. Think about that. A sad existence. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. Some real help, by the way. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. That is a graphic, graphic picture into the life of the disabled in ancient times. We're talking about poverty, real poverty, unimaginable poverty, loneliness. Man, I'm sure he made some buddies. He probably had some guys he laid next to. For 38 years. But talk about a sadness, sad existence, hopelessness, and helplessness. The best that you've got to hope for is being plopped over, rolled over into the water at just the right time based on some sort of wives' tale. And here are these two guys, these blind guys. It's interesting that the needy hang out together. These two were probably pals. They called out to the Lord for mercy. And he gave them, in this case, notice, they're not calling out for, for forgiveness. That's why we're talking about a completely different trajectory. They're not calling out for forgiveness. They're calling out for real help. Can you help me in my real disability, in my real need? And Jesus delivered real, tangible help. Take up your mat. Here, let me fix your eyes. Bing. Real help. Okay, here's the next vignette. Uh, chapter 15 of Matthew. Chapter 15 of Matthew. This is a story about a Canaanite woman. And let me, let me sort of set the stage for a Canaanite. It might be the possibilities to, there for you to just hear this story and just hear this word Canaanite and just breeze right past you, the significance of it. But it'll help you understand Jesus' response too. Okay, the land of Canaan is where Abraham moved to. That's where the Lord sent him from, Ur of Chaldeans. You go to a land that I'll show you, and I'll make of you a great nation. Okay, so he goes to the land of Canaan, and he goes into the land of Canaan, and the Lord, you can, I've, I've described this visual before where he, he's in the car, and the Lord pulls him up in front of the guy's house, and you know, there's somebody sitting there eating uh, dinner at the, the, the dining room window, and the Lord says, this is all going to be yours, Abraham. But at the moment, it's occupied. It's occupied by the people we're talking about here, the Canaanites. It's occupied the people by the people that later were to be completely eradicated from the land during the conquest by Joshua. And, you know, we're fit in the battle of Jericho, that whole context. Okay, those are the Canaanites that weren't completely eradicated from the land. They were not the people of the promise. They were not God's chosen people. If anything, you would say these are the people that weren't God's chosen people. I mean, like, were not. Emphasis on not God's chosen people. Well, this woman, a Canaanite, comes to the Lord, and she calls out for mercy, real help. Okay, let's see how it goes down. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. In verse 22, behold, a Canaanite woman came from that region and came out and was crying, Have mercy, mercy me, Lord. Son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, but he did not answer her a word. Okay, you're going to understand his response in light of what I just described to you about the Canaanites. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. See, there it is. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. Mercy. 
me. I need some real, tangible help. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It sounds harsh, but you understand it in context now when you're realizing she's a Canaanite. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. A need for real help, a call for mercy, and a merciful God delivers real help. Man, this particular little vignette reminds me of an occasion where a woman named Hagar and a little boy named Ishmael, who were not part of the chosen people, were out in the desert about to, about to, to die of thirst. And a merciful God, the same merciful God that we're considering this morning, provided water and food and nourishment and deliverance for Hagar and Ishmael. Because a need is a need, and we have a merciful God. Man, it turns out the rain does, in fact, fall on the just and the unjust because we have a merciful, good God. Man. All right, here's the third vignette. This one will be really brief, and then we'll spend a few minutes on the last one. Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, kneeling before him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. Mercy, my son. I need, we need some mercy. For he's an epileptic and he suffers terribly, real needs, real disabilities. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. I'm just, just keep him away from the fire, first of all. And I brought him to your disciples and they would not heal him or could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. There it is yet again. A cry for help, a cry for mercy, and Jesus just helps him. He just helps. Now here's the last one, Matthew chapter 20. And this one too, it's interesting too, it's like bookends. Here's a couple more blind guys. Bookend blind guys. It's like deja vu all over again. Listen, listen how it goes down. In chapter 20, beginning in verse 29. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. We're going to spend a couple more minutes on this one. A great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, probably doing what they did every day. This is their version of the pools of Bethesda. Their family probably plopped them there. Okay, Billy and Johnny, you hang out right here all day, just like you always do, and see if some folks will give you some money, since you can't make any money on your own because you're blind and you're completely hopeless and helpless. They probably didn't say all those things every single day, but we're just kind of interjecting, Then that's, that's the story. Okay, the two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, mercy us. Give us some help, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, mercy us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, can you just help us? Can you just help us? Let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Two more blind men, the needy often move in pairs and groups, calling for mercy. And the crowd, their response is, pay attention to what the crowd did. Hey, can you guys shut up? Can you guys be quiet because you're really on our nerves? Here we are following Jesus and you're really on our nerves. Can you guys just be quiet? And Jesus in pity and with compassion touched them and healed them. I was thinking about what the, the, the crowds are doing here might be a way that we respond to the needy and the uh, undesirables at times when they're interrupting our vibe of following the Lord. Can you consider that for a moment? Maybe there's some times that, hey... You're a distraction to me following Jesus over here. Can you get out of my way? You're bothering me because you're so messy. And I got nothing for you. And by the way, I'm following Jesus. I thought it was interesting that Jesus made time for them, though. See, it's the temptation to read chapter 20 and just leave it alone. But I want you to notice what's going on in chapter 21. 
Because you might think, man, I've got stuff going on. I've got some important stuff to do. It's been interesting to me over the number of times over the years where Thursday is the day where I really try and land the plane on finishing up my sermon. It's not ever officially finished until I stand right here. I spend a lot of time on Saturdays. I try not to touch it on Fridays. But by the end of the day, Thursday, I want to have a large portion of my sermon done. And it is interesting to me the number of times that I have what I would call interruptions and distractions on Thursday. Man, can you not bother me right now? Because I've got to be about the Lord's work. And I bet you have occasions where you can think about that. I don't have time for your messiness and your interruption because I'm busy doing something that's more important. Well, apparently the Lord had time for these two blind guys when meanwhile in chapter 21, he's got some really important stuff to do. He has a donkey to ride, first of all, right? I mean, you see the heading right there in chapter 21? Triumphal entry. He's going into his last week. I've got work to do. I've got a donkey to ride. I've got parables to tell. I've got a temple to clear. I don't have time for the likes of you guys. That's what the crowds are saying. Can you guys shut up? And Jesus is saying, I've got time for you. I'll take time for you in your real need, and I'll deliver real tangible, like in noun form, mercy and help. Man, it should not surprise us that this is the kind of Lord that we have. These are beautiful, old-fashioned, tangible, and real needs that were common to ancient Israel. And you see a nice application of the kind of Lord that we have. Remember last week we considered the name of the Lord where uh, Moses asked, he said, Can you show me your, your, your ways, Lord, in Exodus chapter 33? Can you show me your ways, how you move? Can you show me your glory? And then in chapter 34, he says, you know what? I'll I'll, I'll tell you my name. And he says, my name is, first of all, merciful. My name is merciful and gracious. I'm slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It shouldn't surprise us that we're seeing this kind of movement from the Lord. Because this is God's nature to provide mercy and real help. You understand that's why Jonah was so upset about the notion of going to Nineveh? I don't want to go to Nineveh because I know the kind of God that you are. And I know the kind of stuff that you're up to, and I don't want the Ninevites to have any help. Jonah said specifically, he he referred to the name of the Lord. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God, a merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. I didn't want to go to Nineveh because I don't want the Ninevites to have any help. Because that's the kind of God that you are as you provide real, tangible mercy. Man, we have a great God who is merciful and compassionate. So shouldn't we be. We have a God who is merciful and compassionate. So shouldn't we be. The last verse I have for you this morning where we're going to spend our last remaining minutes is in Matthew Chapter 25. And it's beautifully simple. There. I understand somebody told me this week that some of y'all are using like electronic Bibles and stuff. It's hard to, you need to get like a little audio in there that makes the pages turn where you turn it up real loud. The rest of us are using the old fashioned pages. Matthew chapter 25. This is so good, y'all. I'm telling you, this is so simple. May we not do um, gymnastics in the next few minutes, okay? Lord, please guard us from gymnastics. May we just do the simple work of reading it and saying, Lord, work this in us. Let me read this simple passage to you. The heading there beginning in verse 31 is the final judgment. Okay, believer or not, we're all going to stand in final judgment. If you're a believer in this room, you know that you have a way to stand in that because you're trusting in Christ, your union with Christ. But judgment is still coming for the believers and the unbelievers. 
And this passage is about that judgment. I want you to notice what is in there and what's not in there. It's so beautifully simple. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. Okay, we're going to be there. Okay? Even if you're dead, you'll be raised to be there. If you're alive, you'll just be there. All right, this is something we're all going to see firsthand someday. All right, let that hit you just for a minute. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Anybody familiar with this passage? Sheep and goats passage? That's one like you read and you swallow hard, you're like, gulp. Man, over the years, I've actually separated the worship center into sheep and goat side. I'm not going to do that this morning because I don't want anybody to feel like they're a goat this morning. But let's just climb into this moment and say, ah, this is a really, really heavy moment. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There's inheritance, kingdom inheritance language, the same thing that's there in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for you shall inherit the kingdom. Blessed are the meek and hungry, or excuse me, the meek and humble, for you shall inherit the earth. This is the same language that, that we've already considered there in Matthew chapter 5. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry. I had like a real need, and you gave me real food. We're not talking figurative. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You welcomed me. I was naked. You clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison. You came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Man, can, that, can we just let that sit there for a minute? Just as simple and beautiful? Isn't that just so beautiful? These guys, the sheep in this case, the righteous at judgment, the ones that stand and survive the judgment, they say, you know, when did we see you, Jesus, when we met people with real merciful deliverance, with real tangible mercy. When did we see you when we met that guy that was hungry and we just gave him something to eat? I didn't see you there. I just saw a hungry guy. I just saw a thirsty person. I saw someone that needed clothing. I saw someone that was displaced, a refugee maybe. I saw a stranger. I didn't realize that was you. And Jesus says, man, I was there. I was there when you ministered to them, you ministered to me. Man, let's read the rest of this, though. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Man, let's not do gymnastics here. Can we just read it for what it's saying? I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will answer saying, Lord. It's interesting, they're calling him Lord. Implying they think they know him. Man, let that hit you for a minute. Lord. When did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or in prison or sick and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Man, just let that hit you for a minute. It's almost like Jesus saying, you didn't see me at all. Not only did you think you knew me, but you didn't even see me at all in all of those, all of those occasions. All of those circumstances when call, somebody called out to you with a real need. 
a real circumstance in real life where they needed real tangible mercy, you had an opportunity to represent me, to in some ways be me in that moment, providing real mercy in noun form, some real help. Man, this stuff right here, this stuff we're talking about is real stuff this morning. it, It occurred to me over the last, I think it's 16 years, I don't know that I've ever... I haven't preached on this passage in 16 years. I preached John, I preached Hebrews, I preached Ephesians and Job. Um, I think that's it. But I haven't preached this passage before. But it occurred to me over the years, over the 16 years, the heavyweight stuff that we've considered as a people that you really could kind of consider as ethereal. Do you know what that word means? Ethereal? The root word is ether. It's kind of... Like not tangible is specifically what that word means. There's some synonyms are celestial, heavenly, spiritual, immaterial. We talk about immaterial stuff, spiritual stuff, intangible stuff every single week. And it's awesome stuff. Union with Christ. We talked, I mentioned that this morning already. Union with Christ, mystical union with Christ. That when you trust Christ, you are united to him by faith. Where his righteousness is counted as yours and your sin is paid for by him. That's a a heady thing. That's ethereal, and it's awesome, right? I hope you hear that stuff up here relentlessly. I hope you hear about stuff like propitiation, expiation, imputation, sanctification, justification. I hope you hear all the occasions, all the time. But what I'm talking about this morning is not ethereal at all. It's simple. It's simple stuff. Shame on us if we do gymnastics to try and make it ethereal. Shame on us if we make it figurative, metaphorical, whatever it is where we actually don't provide real noun form mercy to real needs. Man, shame on us. We live in a community that are full of the same sort of stuff. We live in a community that's full of all manner of needs. I'm going to close with this thought from Luke chapter 12, verse 48. It says, everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. To whom much is given, much will be required. And I hope this sermon interrupts us individually, first of all. I hope that every person in this room is feeling like, I'm a little uncomfortable right now. I can tell you I am. I told Christy last night, in fact, I was, I was already about to close my eyes, and her phone was nearby. I said, can you calculate what 50 times 16 is? Because I couldn't do it in my head. I was too tired. And she said, was it 800? Yeah. And I said, okay, well, I figure in 16 years I preached between 700 and 800 sermons based on that. Between 700 and 800 sermons. If I only preached the sermons that I was nailing, you know, stuff that I was like, man, I got this down in my life. Boy, if you, see, if you don't see this in my life, you're missing it because it's here in, in great measure. You'd have like seven or eight sermons by 700 or 800. And probably those seven or eight sermons would be completely impotent because I'd be thinking I'd be proud. <laughs> It'd be too proud for them to actually deliver anything. I'm standing here with you as a hearer of this sermon being interrupted. Equally interrupted. Lord, if this is who you are, if you are merciful with real interruptions, real cries for mercy that are met with real needs, then Lord, first of all, starting with Ben McGraw, teach me to never see it as an interruption. Teach me to see it as, first, I'm ministering to my Lord. Man, in the messy, the blind, the lame, the sick, the addicted. Can we talk about addiction? Do we live in a community that are full of the addict, addicts? With no money, the broke, they go together, don't they? But man, we don't want to get our hands dirty. We don't want to get our hands messy. That wouldn't be good stewardship is a term that I go to. I make a beeline to that. That wouldn't be good stewardship, right? <laughs> of my time nor money. Man, what would Jesus do? Who did Jesus hang out with? Man, I don't see any addicts in their day. 
But I bet the addicts would be mixed right in there with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners. The people that Jesus made a beeline to. The sick and the needy. Those in need of a physician. Y'all, we live in a community with lots of messy stuff. And we can keep our hands clean and we can come and go and miss Jesus. Is the point of this message this morning. I want to be interrupted as an individual. I want our families to be interrupted to where our families begin to discuss how should this change the way we move? How should this change the way we spend our time or or how we make our time more available to specific needs that are around us? And how should this influence us as a church? How should it shape our identity in Greenville? How we spend our money even as a church family? Man, I hope a sermon like this interrupts us to shape us because I don't want to miss Jesus. I hope that you don't want to miss him either. Much has been given to us, and we are truly rich. I'll just throw out three real tangible needs right now, and they're not massive, but they're three things that you can put in front of you. The first is, is simple. Pay attention to needs around you. Uh, The Thomas Watson quote I started with, or it was kind of mid-sermon, I'll share it again. It's a beautiful definition of mercy. And I'll I'll email it out to you all if you didn't get a chance to write it down. A melting disposition whereby we lay to heart the miseries of others and are ready on all occasions to be instrumental for their good. A melting disposition whereby we lay to heart the the miseries of others and are ready on all occasions to be instrumental for their for their good. That's the first thing. Pay attention to needs around you. They're around you. We can insulate ourselves and isolate ourselves and miss them all together. If we're paying attention, we'll see them. That's the first thing. The second thing, we have a, a team of folks here that are recently formed at Crosspoint. It's called the Benevolence Team. Uh, it's, I think it's three or four guys right now. I want to ask you all to consider if you'd like to be part of that ministry. We don't even have to call it benevolence ministry anymore. Let's call it mercy ministry, like noun mercy ministry. (laughs) We're talking about real help to real needs that come across our our body, our congregation, and in in our community. If you'd like to be part of something like that, man, I'd like you to reach out to me. I can help you connect the dot to that ministry team. It's our ministry. It's not their ministry. It's not this little team. It's our ministry as a church to be merciful in this community. So that's the second thing. And here's the third thing, and this is really an easy one. We have a ministry here with this year is on October 5th from 6 to 8.30. If you'd like to represent our church and go to that and find out what's going on with the Hope Ministry, the Hope Ministry is one that connects real need, mercy, noun, as in noun mercy, to folks that have real needs. And if we can figure out how we can connect to that in a way that's meaningful, in a way that's tangible, in a way that's blessing, would, would bless that ministry and come alongside that, that ministry, I would invite you to reach out to me and let me know if you'll be our representative at this, this banquet. It's October 5th from 6 to 8.30 uh, here in Greenville. There's a chef there and all kind of good stuff, so it's probably going to be pretty good in addition to something that will bless our congregation and bless the Hope Ministry. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that you would guard us from thinking through some way around this. Lord, I pray that you would bring to mind some real needs that surround us. And if we can't bring any to mind, Lord, that you would bring some to our eyes and our ears and our awareness in these coming days, Lord, that we would be an attentive people who are listening for calls and cries for mercy. Lord, I pray that you would work in us, that we would be a merciful people And that we would continue to receive relentless, durable, unending, wonderful mercy from you. We are thankful for that promise, Lord. We pray that you would work this in us for your namesake. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. For our supper this morning, I'm going to share a passage that I actually shared over the course of the sermon. But I want you to hear it as a fitting supper uh, kind of devotional. It's the story of the Canaanite woman. It's a room full of Gentiles here. We could almost say a room full of Canaanites. Okay, just so we can connect to this. A room full of folks that are in league with this woman that cried out for mercy. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, Lord. Mercy me, son of David. 
My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Man, this is a very much an Israel-centric response. The nation of Israel or the chosen people is his response. Okay, so let's just consider that for a moment as we're about to take this supper. I came um, for the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Give me some mercy. Give me some real help. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Man, I hope that you connected with this Canaanite woman right here and her faith and the fact that she was helped and healed and delivered or her daughters healed by our Lord. Man, it's a beautiful metaphor of our story. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, how great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Each, each week when we take the supper, we have a whole lot more than scraps. And we have to remind ourselves we're a room full of outsiders. A room full of outsiders that have been invited by grace because of his grace and mercy, because of his nature as a merciful, gracious God into this storyline and that he has given a strong provision of real help and a real meal. Let's distribute the elements.